If you have a Bible, would you open up to 1 Samuel chapter 27? And if you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in the pew seat in front of you. You can grab that and use that this morning. And if you actually really don't have one at all, go home. You can keep that one you have, and that'll be a gift from us to you. Uh, really excited about um, Aletheia, the, the, our young adults ministry that Marcus and the team are a part of. Um, just if you are a young adult, that's a group you want to plug into because they really go at it. You guys live for things that matter, and that matters. That's really important. I'm also very excited and proud of them because unlike their, the senior pastor, they didn't get kicked out of the Mormon temple when they visited last. So good job, guys. Um, and I will tell you that story one day. One day that story will come out. Uh, but it wasn't my fault, really, at all. <laughs> all right. Well, hopefully by now you are at 1 Samuel chapter 27. And um, we, we really should have seen this coming, shouldn't we have? Uh, David alluded to his forced exile, after all, in the last chapter we looked at. And here we have David and the people following him, nearly a thousand people, a little bit more than that, fleeing to the Philistines, the enemies of God's people fleeing to Gath. We can't really blame them, though, when you think about it. If you've been in our study for the last several chapters, they have been attacked, they have been betrayed, they've been deceived, they've been treacherously exposed. Life has been on the edge for them, and they needed some kind of respite. And so here they go, heading to Gath of all places. For the last nine chapters of our study, it, it's been very high adrenaline, kind of uh, very action-packed things that make good movies, but take their toll on real people. And so by the time we come across David and the 600 men and the ho their households, they are in a very precarious situation when we get to chapter 27. Now, admittedly, if you had read ahead, as we encourage you to do every week, this might have seemed like an odd chapter. It is for a number of reasons. One of them is because this is an incomplete chapter. It, it goes from chapter 27, verse 1, and it, uh, the narrative abruptly ends at 28.2, and, and then it, the, the, the subject switches entirely. It talks about King Saul and the witch of Endor. And so we don't actually pick up the second part of this chapter until chapter 29. But for some reason, this is the way the author of 1 Samuel has presented this chapter to us, and so we need to deal with it as it's presented to us in God's Word. And so in keeping with last week's habit, so we don't lose the forest for the trees, I'm going to actually read this entire narrative that we're studying together, and it's not very long. Uh, it goes from chapter 27 to the very first part of chapter 28, and then what we'll do is we'll jump into each of these sections. One of the benefits of studying God's Word is, it, the way we do chapter by chapter, is that it forces you to deal with chapters that you might otherwise wanted to have skipped. Uh, at staff meeting this week, Adam walked into the meeting and said, I don't know what you're going to do about 1 Samuel 27, and you'll see what I'm talking about in a few moments. But with that, let me read to you our narrative this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 27, verse 1, then David said in his heart, uh, if you have an NIV, it says, and David kept saying in his heart, that's important, we'll see that in a little bit, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. I will perish by Saul's hand. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achash, the son of Maoch. King of Gath, and David lived with Achash at Gath, and he, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. 
verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of your country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites and the Gerzerites and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today, David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jehiramalites, or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. Chapter 28, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. Verse 2, David said to Achish, very well, you shall know that you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Okay, let's stop there. So here we have David and the 600 men and all their households who are with them. They flee to the Philistines again. Maybe not for all of David's people following David, but certainly for David, this is the second time he runs to the Philistines for safety. The writer doesn't give us the motivation for David doing this. We can only speculate. There's much about this chapter that we can only speculate. Maybe it's because David, as he's growing in his faith, remember one of the neat things about seeing his life is we often think of David as a complete package. We always see him as fighting Goliath, man of full of heroic faith and, and utterly uh, courageous for the Lord. But there are times we have seen that David's like you and I that he's a real human being and stress has stresses and fears, and sometimes they get the best of him. And so while he is building his faith, his fears also get a grip of him, and maybe it is for fear that God's promises surely cannot keep delivering him as they have. Sooner or later, God's salvation must run out, and, and we need to provide for ourselves. Maybe that's his motivation. Maybe he's just fearing Saul. The noose has been getting tighter and tighter. Their escapes have been narrower and narrower, and maybe David reasons sooner or later, Saul is going to outsmart us. We need to get someplace safe. Maybe it was just practicality. After all, he has 600 men with their families, and they can't be nomads forever. They can't be on the, on the run. They need rest. They need stability. Whatever reason, we don't know. But David and this horde of people following him go to, Philistine, to the Philistines for safety. Now, this time, however, unlike chapter 21, the irreparable rift between Saul and David apparently is known at least to some of the Philistines because David is welcomed in this time, at least by Achish, who David approached in chapter 21. And they couldn't be happier with this turn of events. You see, without David, Saul lacked the military leadership sufficient to, bring, to fight back the Philistine threat. And without Saul, David lacked the military power base from which to operate from. So this was a win-win for the Philistines. 
When the people of God fight against one another, it's a win-win for the enemies of God. And we clearly see this in our passage. So David is given the traditional welcome that we might have heard, the axiom that goes that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what Achish reasons. So he brings him in as the trophy trader, and he offers him a city of his own. It's called Ziklag for David and these, uh, these people to reside. Now, David was an outlaw, keep in mind. He was hunted by the people of Israel, but, but, but feared from the king, and the people of Israel had to hunt them because the king commanded it. And the fact that the Philistines were aware of this deep divide and rift is evidence in the timing of their attacks against the people of Israel. You recall, whenever Saul would go out to hunt David, the Philistines would attack because Saul was distracted. And in one instance, in chapter 23, verses 27 and 28, God had used that to David's benefit. As Saul was about to pounce on David, the Philistines attacked the cities of Israel, and Saul felt compelled to leave his pursuit of David and defend the cities of Israel. This is the reality, though. There's so many more points of this passage, but one we can't miss is that Saul's life for nine chapters and many years had been consumed by his personal agenda, by his anger, by his jealousy towards David. His resources, his, all his, the resources of Israel, his effort, his time, his attention went towards getting rid of David as opposed to fulfilling the role that Israel wanted a king for. You recall in chapters 8 and 9, the whole reason Israel demanded a king was because of the Philistine threat, that the Philistines were getting more and more powerful and the people of Israel saw the threat and asked for a king to lead them and deliver them like all the other nations have. But because of his own personal slights, he lost sight of what God wanted and only focused on what he wanted. The end of Saul's life, we see he squandered the whole purpose God had for him. Folks, while this isn't the main thrust of the message, I I cannot escape the fact that we want to take a lesson from this. (laughs) We don't want to come to the end of our lives in a world where there's so many reasons that we are slighted, there's so many reasons we could feel wronged, so many personal agendas we could pursue. We don't want to take our eye off of what God calls us to do to pursue those things. When God has such a great purpose for His people, when we lose sight of that and make our lives all about our lives, we squander so much. We see that graphically in Saul's life. We see it graphically no no less clearly than just in the geography of the land. Let me show you this map on the screens behind you. What you're seeing are the tribal divisions that God had promised to give to the people of Israel. Genesis chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 15 and other portions of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, God had promised His people, I'm making a people, I'm going to bring you into my land, and it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And so all of those were the tribal allotments. You see Manasseh up there, you see Asher, Naphtali, you see Judah, Benjamin. This was the land that God said, I'm going to give to you, my people, so we can be together. But unfortunately, because of the very thing we talked about, God's people took their eye off the prize, look at what they actually did occupy. This next map shows you the extent of the conquest from Joshua's time hundreds of years later. Now, you can see, while it is a sizable amount, it's nowhere near the size of what God had promised to His people. 
Let's put the next uh, map up there, Ryan. You can see side by side, uh, they're almost to scale, but you can see that what God had promised and what Israel actually occupied was so drastically different. As a matter of fact, the map on the left shows you the extent of Saul's territory has not grown at all from the conquest that Joshua and the people of Israel had done hundreds of years earlier. As a matter of fact, the Philistine threat, if you can see that gray up in the top there, the, the kind of whitish gray, and for those of you in the first few rows, you can see a great dot on Jerusalem. It shows that the Philistines were actually taking ground back by putting garrisons in the territory of Israel. The point simply being that rather than fight back the Philistine threat, because Saul was so consumed with David and what David was doing, that the Philistines actually gained ground. Now, David, he's acting as a double agent, and let me show you here. We can go to the next slide here, Ryan. Um, David's acting as a double agent. By the way, this map here, you may recall, shows you all the blue lines is everywhere David and the people following him would run to, trying to flee from Saul. David has been given Ziklag, a city. So here's this, and it's going to disappear here. You can't barely start. You can see it. Right around here is the city of Ziklag, right there. And this is where David has been given this city. David in our text is telling Achish that he is attacking all these border towns, these areas, and that's what Achish thinks David is attacking. This purple area is the land of Israel, but in reality, David's not plundering them because those are his own people. David is attacking down to the south, and as the text tells us, not a man or woman survives to report back to Achish. David's playing double agent. While David is making a fool of Achish in our passage, Achish is going to make a traitor of David because as we see in chapter 28, Achish is so pleased with how good David is at slaughtering people, he says, we're going to war against your people and we're going to fight them at Aphek. The reason that's significant, if you've been with us in our study, in chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, it was at Aphek that the Israelites suffered a humiliating defeat and were decimated and lost the ark. So this was a very pivotal area of conflict between the Philistines and the Israelites, and now, instead of having the ark as a trophy, they're going to have David as a trophy. Now, David gets out of that by God's providence, but we won't get to that for another two weeks. The point simply being, there's a lot of intrigue in this chapter in and of itself. But what makes this chapter so astounding, so amazing, and actually so difficult is that 1 Samuel 27, relatively speaking, is a godless chapter. I don't, I don't mean it's teaching us to be immoral or be evil or anything like that. I'm simply saying it's godless. There isn't a direct or even indirect mention of God in this entire chapter. There's not even comments on what God thinks about the situation. We find no indication that God has thoughts about what David is doing or not doing. As a matter of fact, not even the writer himself comments on the events of chapter 27. There's no moral commentary given on what David's doing, right or wrong. The reason this is important is here we have David, right? Young David who, who, who fights Goliath, delivers the people of Israel, a man after God's own heart, deceiving Achish, and not just raiding outlying villages and towns, decimating them not leaving man or woman alive. David is just not a shepherd. He's just not a man after God's own heart. He is an outlaw. And chapter 27, he seems like kind of a murderous outlaw. 
Now, on the whole, our chapter presents David in, in a very sympathetic way, even if his actions seem questionable. Now, you might disagree. I had some good conversations after first service. People were asking me, well, what do, what, what do I think about what David is doing? What makes this challenging is we he, see David, and he's doing things that seem very shocking to us, especially from our modern sensibilities. Now, our passage today, I'm making two points. It, really, this goes to show how difficult interpreting a godless passage is. There's, there's, no, no one, there's no bone being thrown to us. This is really what should be going on, even though this is happening. We're left to actually have to figure this out. So, I have two points today. But the second point, because we're going to try and understand David's actions, I'm going to give you an alternative to, we're going to look at, he could be doing this because of this reason, or maybe he could be doing it for this reason. So in a sense, there's two points, but the second one has a sub-point. So there's three points. So for those of you who like three-point sermons, you still get what you want. Does that make sense? So here's the first point, that, that, that even still we don't see and have a direct commentary on God's mind on what's going on. There's enough biblical principles that we can get these life truths out of it. So the first one is this. What we think actually matters. What we think matters. Notice what David is saying in verse 1. Now, I'm going to perish one day by the hand of Saul. I love the way the NIV or the NLT says it. They bring out the sense that this was an ongoing dialogue in David's head. The NIV says, David kept thinking. He kept thinking to himself. Literally, it's David spoke to his heart that he was saying, Saul's going to get me. Saul's going to wipe us out. We are in trouble. David kept repeating these truths, notice the air quotes that are intentional, to himself that were contrary to God's promises to him. Even though we just saw in the last few chapters that Jonathan, uh, Saul's son, Abigail, and Saul himself promised that David would become God's anointed king, and last week we saw that God had given David Saul's spear, which is symbol of authority and kingly power, even though he had all that, David's faith was faltering because of what he'd been telling himself over and over again. Even though David on his own lips said last week that God rewards the righteous and the faithful, but because of what he's been allowing to run constantly in his mind and in his heart, that is that Saul's going to get me, functionally speaking, he denies the promises of God and lives according to what he truly believes in his life. In this way, David is really much like us. Whenever I do counseling, eventually I'll tell somebody that I'm counseling, do you know that you are your most influential counselor in your life? They usually kind of step back. I go, no, no, I'm not saying you're your best counselor. I'm just saying you're your most influential counselor. And I say, well, what do you mean by that? So, well, think about it. You're your most influential counselor because nobody talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. Do you realize that? Do you all do that? We are our most influential counselor because nobody talks to you as much as you talk to yourself. Now, hopefully you're not doing that out loud, but there's always an internal dialogue that you're having in your mind. So the real question has to be, in those moments, are you even aware that you're doing it, and what is the content of the counsel that you give yourself all the time? Does it fan the flame of fear, or is it fanning the flame of trust in God's promises? Because that distinction will make all the difference in the world. 
You see, this is what makes the difference between what I call a, a professed theology and a functional theology, right? So, professed theology is kind of a, uh, you know, like the Apostles' Creed or a statement of faith, and by and large, most of us are here, most of us are pretty orthodox, right? There's a couple of you I wonder about, but most of us are orthodox. But when it comes to our functional theology, the theology that actually shapes the way you lead your life, we all need a lot of work. Right. Let me give you an illustration. We just sang this amazing song. Our last song was You're My King. Right? Here's the lyrics that I, most of you were singing. I was watching. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? You, and the chorus went, you are my king, you are my king. You're almost hearing it in yourselves. Or you are my king, right? We all sang that, and I, I think most of us meant it. But you know what? We're going to drive a half a mile away from church and which king is going to be ruling us? It's probably going to be the king of fear because there's that hard conversation you have to have this week at the office or with your family member. It's not the king of heaven that rules. Now there's this king of fear that's ruling you because of this conversation you have to have, and you're going to act according to that. Or, or you can say, you are my king, but the king of finances says, you really gave how much at the offering plate? You're not going to make ends meet, right? Or, or the king of relaxation. Now, you don't need to go to community group tonight. They're fine without you. Stay home. Watch a movie. Catch the game. Take it easy. You get my point? We can say things with our lips, but functionally speaking, some other king, in this case, is exercising dominion. So, so there's that other line, amazing love. I know it's true. It's my joy to honor you. In all I do, I honor you. Really? What about that jerk of a neighbor you have? Are you honoring him in all you do, the way you relate to that person? You went on a business trip last week. Did you honor him when you were in your hotel room at night? Were you pure? Did you honor him when you submitted your receipts the next week? Were you honest, right? In all I do, am I honoring? I can profess one thing. We can do one thing, but functionally speaking, I can live some way else. And the reason that we, our professed theology and our functional theology is different is what we actually believe is being informed by, guess what? The things, the truths we constantly tell ourselves. And David had great professed theology, right? You can read some of it in the Psalms. But here we get a glimpse that he was shaping his functional theology, singing of God's deliverance, but all the time saying, Saul's going to get me, Saul's going to get me, he's going to get me. And it changed and sh changed the way he behaved. So here's the life truth here. Number one, be careful what truths we allow into our lives because we will be influenced by them. Be careful of your self-talk. Be careful of those truths you let run in your mind perpetually that are often contrary to the profession you, you want to make because they will shape our lives. We need to think biblically. Look at these passages of Scripture really quickly. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul writes to the Philippians, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, Paul's not being picky. He says, whatever it might be, think on these things, because we're so prone to fill our minds with other things. So whatever's true, whatever is good, Paul's not picky at all, just something of that nature. Focus your mind on it, because if you don't, your natural tendency is going to be to drift into things that are not pure, things that are not honorable, things that are not good. 
to the Colossians, he said in chapter 3, verse 16, let the Word of Christ dwell in you, and how? Let it dwell richly, and how does it dwell in you richly? Through teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we to dwell on the Word of God, richly teaching and singing to one another. Now, David didn't do that. At least in this moment, David allowed his fears to rule his self-talk rather than his faith in God's promises, and it pushed him in a direction maybe God did not want him to go to the enemies of God's people, to the Philistines. So how we think matters. Secondly, and admittedly a little bit more difficult here, how we live matters. We're talking about David and these actions of his recorded in verses 8 and 9, his raids and attacks against these towns around him. Now, we see, as I said, David's living in Ziklag and conducting all these raids and giving the spoils back to Achish. We really have to ask, how do we account for David's behavior here? Is it theologically driven or is it just pragmatically driven? And then we have to ask, do I live theologically or pragmatically? I'll present both and, and leave you to wrestle with it, not because I don't want to give you solid answers, it's just because it, we're left to have to wonder here. But I think the weight of evidence falls on the fact that David was living theologically when he was conducting these raids, even though our author seems to indicate that maybe David wasn't upright as he could have been. Verse 9 and 11, he's recounting how he wiped out every man and woman so that no survivors could tell what he was doing. So, what's the first theory? First theory is that David, uh, in keeping with the last chapters we've studied, not knowing how God was going to deliver him and bring him the kingdom, in a time of uncertainty, uh, not having the throne yet, being on the run, was waiting for to, to be obedient to the Lord, recognizing that the conquest of the promised land hadn't taken fulfillment right? We, we, we saw those maps. Jo, uh, Joshua 13 talks about how the Gerzites weren't even bothered, and they still were in the land. So, one theory is that David, while waiting for God's promises to become real and concrete, used his time wisely by continuing what the Torah, what the Old Testament commanded, and that was to wipe out the wickedness of the Amalekites. If you're a note-taker, write down Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 17. Um, Joshua 13, verses 1 and 2. Exodus 17, verses 15 and 16, these passages all refer to God saying, as you come into the promised land, wipe out these inhabitants. Their wickedness have come to to overflowing, and I need to purge the land. And the children of Israel, by and large, did that with few exceptions. David, it's believed, reason, while I'm waiting for God's deliverance, why don't I be faithful to continue to do what my ancestors were commanded to do? And so, the very three people groups he's attacking were part of what's called the ban in the Old Testament. God said, you're to wipe them out from the land. And you remember in 1 Samuel 15, Saul failed to wipe out the Amalekites. And so, here we see David still doing that job. Ultimately, the writer neither condemns nor condones what we see of David in this chapter. He makes no attempt to put some kind of moral or biblical or godly interpretation in it. It's it's godless. But we're left to think, given what we've seen of David, this is probably a man who's trying to be faithful even though he's he's got failures in his life, seeking to be faithful to what God has of him, seeking to be obedient as best as he can while he lives with uncertainty. 
So that, if that's the case, then our second life point truth would be this. Even in our times of uncertainty, like waiting for God's provision, and at some point in some area of your life, every one of us in this room is waiting for God's provision. I've used different words, waiting for God's deliverance, waiting for God's salvation in different ways. In times of uncertainty, focus on what is certain, our obedience to Him. We talked in the last couple of weeks that God doesn't give us the specifics so often. He doesn't tell you who to marry, but He tells you what kind of husband or wife to be. He doesn't tell you what job you're going to get, but He will tell you what kind of an employer or employee you should be. He won't tell you where to invest your money, but He will tell you to steward it. So while there may be things that are uncertain, there's a lot of specificity that Scripture still gives us. So we need to, the point being is we need to learn to live God's truths. We want to live biblically. We want to live obediently for the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that our, our obedience to God earns us favor with Him, right? That's not what we believe. The Bible's very clear that Christians are people that are saved by God's grace. It's not anything we've earned. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, for by grace we've been saved, not of works, so that none of us could boast, right? But, but that doesn't follow from that, that there's no change in the way we live, right? John Calvin beautifully said it this way. He said, it is grace alone that saves, but the grace that saves is never alone, right? That's, that's powerful. It is grace alone that saves, but the grace that saves is never alone. In other words, there should be a corresponding change in the way we live for those of us who profess that we've been changed by Christ. You simply cannot get away from the fact that the redemptive message of the cross is not simply about getting saved and then we're done. Oh, I got saved. Woo, okay, I'm cruising through life. That is not the redemptive message of the gospel. From Genesis to Revelation, it is that God is looking to call a people to himself to share in his rule and his reign and in his glory by being conformed into the image and likeness of his son. Folks, that's amazing. We're not simply called to be saved. We're called to represent God in business, in insurance, in your home, in your neighborhood, in politics, in entertainment, in science, in technology. We are called to extend the reign and rule of God to every sphere of our life. And that means there's got to be visible change in us. So keep your finger in 1 Samuel. I want to take you to Ephesians chapter 4. This is just one of many chapters that talks about what this change in our lives should look like. Ephesians is right after the book of Galatians, right before Philippians. Ephesians chapter 4, I'm going to land just in the middle of the chapter. Uh, verse 20, Paul says this, uh, but that is not the way you learn Christ. He, he was talking to Ephesians that, that they need to be radically different from the Gentiles. Verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So Paul says you need to put off and then put on. You need to turn from to turn to. Paul's always saying that that's the reality of the Christian life. There's gonna be changes in us. And he says in righteousness and holiness. Righteousness speaks of uh, actions, folks. In the, in the Greek, the Hebrew, uh, um, tzedek, it's acts of righteousness. 
So the righteousness, you're going to see it in the way I live, whether it's social justice, whether it's business ethics, there's going to be a radical change in my righteousness, and that's specifically referring to my actions, acts of righteousness. A righteous man or woman is someone who does right acts. And holiness, I love how Paul uses both those words. They're common words because one describes our actions, our act, the acts of righteousness, and holiness. In the Greek, it's hagios. In the Hebrew, it's chavod. It means heaviness. We've talked about that, right? That God is heavy. That there's this internal understanding and somberness about who he is. God's transcendence, his uniqueness, and his dangerousness. Do you have a category for God being dangerous? God's not Santa Claus, right? He's not just that guy I look forward to because he gives me presents. God made the sun. God made the sun that puts out the same amount of power as one trillion atom bombs a second. That's dangerous, folks. And Paul's saying when you have been called to be him, sharing in his reign and representing him, called to be conformed to his image and likeness, that means you're going to be different and your life is going to be set apart and in a a great way, dangerous. One of our former members, Ben Warner, some of you remember him, he told me something so beautiful. He says, if your morality isn't dangerous, it's not fueled by the gospel. If your morality just fits in with the cultural norms of of our society, that's not the gospel's reality. The gospel's reality is always going to have a certain element of danger to it. Oh, that's true. Because this world is in conflict to the things of God. And if we're going to have a morality that that isn't marked by danger, we're not understanding God's heart for this world that is lost. So, that's one interpretation, that that David in his times of uncertainty was just trying to be obedient to God, and he was fulfilling the mandates given to the Torah and waiting for God's deliverance. Now, that's David being theological. Let's just talk about what, what if David was just being practical, pragmatic. He was being driven by situational ethics. Clearly, you, you get the impression, I don't think that was what he should have been doing. But that's the way some people live. They don't let God's Word drive them. They l- allow pragmatism situational ethics, relativism to guide them, and Christians do it too. Well, if that's what David is doing, then it's, it's a good thing that we have this passage in 1 Samuel 27 because it helps break our view of, of David in a sense. We have a propensity to hero worship, and, and David himself would not want to be worshiped. We, we want to be broken of saying, David is how we're supposed to be. No, we're supposed to say David is an a object, a vessel of God's grace. We should be amazed at the God of grace that used such broken vessels as David. After all, scandal, and this would certainly be that, is just a reminder of our humanity. Folks, we should never be shocked. We should be grieved when we see scandal. It should break our hearts. It really should. But we should never be shocked. Of all people out there, Christians should not be shocked by scandal. Of all people out there, we should get how people can present themselves as righteous but do such horrible things. Because of all people, we have a biblical anthropology. The Bible teaches us that human nature is not just all good or all bad, right? That's the way we sometimes tend to think when we're not letting the Bible inform us. These people are good. These people are bad. You're good. You're bad. That's, that's too shallow, 
in our culture, we don't even have those categories. It's because that's too moral. So I do a lot of reading of psychology for my dissertation. So I'm reading a ton of psychology, and the new norm is it's not good and bad. It's healthy and sick. So healthy people don't commit crimes and horrendous acts, but sick people do. Right? That's still too shallow. See, the Bible has a robust understanding of human nature that is not so shallow as it's good or bad. Biblical characters are good or bad. That's not how it works. The Bible understands that all people, Christian or not, are sinners in God's image. We have to remember that. So I shouldn't be surprised when a Christian brother or sister sins against me. Number one, they're probably good at that kind of thing, so it's going to come out. But I also shouldn't be surprised when a sister or brother extends mercy and grace and forgives me when I sin against them. After all, God's working in them, and He's enabling them to do that very thing. See, see we, we tend to lionize or demonize people in our culture, don't we? Because we're not allowing a biblical worldview of human personhood to color the way we view each other. And so we, we have this, I either lionize you or demonize you, and depending on how you act or conduct yourself, I'm going to put you in that category or this category. If I like you and you do good to me, I'm going to lionize you and sing your praise. You cross that line and somehow sin against me or say something I don't like, I'm going to now demonize you, and I'm going to think everything badly about you, and I have misperceptions about you. You can do no wrong or you can do no good. Like you can't live up to the expectation or live it down. The Bible says, no, human beings because we're made in God's image, do amazing, noble acts. But because we're sinners, we violate the very image within us with atrocities and and wickedness. See, the Bible not only has an understanding of how this can be, and if you don't understand a biblical view of humanity, how do you explain man's virtue and vice? You have to be able to reconcile that. You have to, because that's the world we live in. But more importantly, the Bible doesn't just explain how we can have virtue and vice, how good people can do horrible things or how horrible people can do acts of nobility. The Bible explains how good people that do horrible acts can be forgiven and how horrible people can be changed in their core. See, that, that, that forgiveness and transformation is at the heart of the gospel message. And that's the way we need to relate to one another. So if if we're seeing David just acting out of sheer pragmatism, this is reminding us, don't look at David because he will let us down. Look at the God that David serves and how God transforms him. Just like we shouldn't look to one another and and say, okay, well, we should see how God is using Greg Marks, how God is transforming him. Or, or cha- challenging Marcus or any one of us from being self-righteous, self-centered to glorifying God and being a God-lover and lover of people. See, we need to understand that that's what people are in the Bible and all around us, people in progress. It's not just David, Elijah, great prophet of God that, that called fire down from heaven and in the next chapter ran away and got depressed. Or Peter, who Jesus, who understood spiritual realities and said, the king, Jesus said, the kingdom is, is close at hand. And then six verses later, Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. We are all people in works, people in progress. One of the things that makes that possible in the Christian worldview is the grace of God 
that we should always be amazed at, that we see in David's life, that we see effective throughout all the chapters of 1 Samuel and in our own lives. I can't think of a better way to, to celebrate that or picture that than celebrating the Lord's Supper, which we have this morning. If you're new at Christ Community Church, the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper is a little different. We're going to have servers who are at the front of the aisles prepared to serve you the elements. And when you're ready, after you have had a time to prepare your heart, please just come on down, take a piece of the bread and dip it into the cup, and the servers will pronounce a blessing over you. Uh, if you have young children and you're not sure if you want them to participate in communion, just let the servers know and they'll be happy to pray for your children. Uh, one last note, we have a gluten-free line, so if you're gluten intolerant, make sure you're in this aisle here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace that is all throughout Scripture. We thank you for the grace that is given to us in Christ. We pray, Lord, that we would live out the truths that we find in this very unusual chapter. What we think, how we live, and how we relate really matter. Would you help us to do all those in a way that honors you and fulfills your purposes? We'll pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.